Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The Bible teaches that God sovereignly elects some to be saved. The first time many people hear that truth, they immediately react and ultimately reject it. They come up with a series of objections as to why that cannot be true. Generally speaking, all the objections that you can think of to the doctrine of election fall into two very broad categories. If you stop and think about it, you're talking about God electing men. Those are the two categories. Some of the objections have to do with the Godward side of this question. And other objections have to do with what I'm going to call the manward side of this question. On the Godward end, there are questions like, or at least objections like, God is unfair then, or God is unjust. People will argue, if God chooses people to be saved, then why should I pray? Why should I preach the gospel to people? Why should I pay missionaries to go and give the gospel to people in other parts of the world? After all, if God's going to choose them anyway. Why should we bother to go? The other classification of objections has to do with the manward side of this question. If God elects people to be saved, then the objection is man does not have a free will. You have reduced him to the status of a robot. He has no choice. And you might even argue, therefore, no responsibility. Now, how do you answer these objections to the doctrine of God's sovereign selection? In the writings of the Apostle Paul, there are two main passages in which he deals with this question in any kind of detail. The first is Ephesians chapter 1, and the second is Romans chapter 9. In both passages, it seems to me, the Apostle Paul teaches that God sovereignly elects some to be saved. In one of these passages, however, he takes the time to answer objections. And interestingly enough, he speaks to both of these issues, the Godward and the manward side of the subject of sovereignty. Let's look then at Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of, the, of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who were, was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where I have said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sands of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth has left us a seed, we would become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. This passage of Scripture is obviously divided by the Apostle Paul himself into two parts. In verses 14 through 18, he answers the question posed in verse 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? In verses 19 through 29, he answers the question posed in verse 19. Why does he still find fault? So this passage deals with objections to the doctrine of election, and it answers the two classifications of objections. The Godward objection, is God unfair? And the manward side of the question, is man to blame or is man responsible? This passage speaks directly to the same objections that are voiced today over the doctrine of election. So what's Paul's answer? to the two great objections to the doctrine of election. Well, let's look at the first. In verse 14 he says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? The first question, the first objection, deals with God being unfair. But notice how Paul phrases the question. He says, What shall we say then? He uses that little phrase in Romans seven times. As I recall, this is the seventh time he's used that phrase to introduce a question. Technically, this is not an imaginary objector. Notice he says, what shall we 
he includes himself in this question. So he's not referring to some imaginary objector who is arguing with him. He's posing the question himself. It's more accurate to call this a rhetorical question, or, as one commentator refers to this, a personal reflection. Having established that God is sovereign in verses 6 through 13 of this chapter, Paul then pauses and ponders the question, well, what shall we say to that doctrine? Is there unrighteousness with God? He has in man, of course, what he has just said. In verses 6 to 13, he talked about the fact that there was a difference between Jacob and Esau. God obviously exercised sovereignty in choosing one above the other. He talked about the sovereign choice God made between Ishmael and Isaac. And for that matter, of all the nation of Israel. So he very logically now says, well, if God makes those kinds of sovereign choices, is he unjust in doing so? Is he unrighteous? I think there's even a larger context to this question in verse 14. Remember that the subject of the book of Romans is righteousness. In this major division of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is talking about the fact that God's righteousness is vindicated in his dealings with Israel. So it is very appropriate, both in the immediate context and in the overall context of all the book of Romans, that he should pose the question, is there unrighteousness with God? If God sovereignly chooses some people, as the Bible teaches he does, is he unfair? Is he unjust? Is he unrighteous? His response to that question is, verse 14, certainly not. Paul is horrified at the prospect of God being unrighteous or unjust. And so his immediate response is an emphatic denial. Of course not. Certainly not. Or as it was translated in the old King James, God forbid. Of course God, not unrighteous. Well, how do you explain the objection? Well, in order to do that, in the following verses, Paul quotes two passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. Then, after each one of these quotes, he draws a conclusion so that the structure of the verses from 15 to 18 is we're going to have two quotes and two conclusions. The first quotation is in verse 15. He says, For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now that is a quotation from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. If you were to go back and look at Exodus 33, you would discover that Moses requested that he be able to see God. And God said to him, in essence, I will show myself and have compassion and mercy on whomever I will. And I then will choose to do that for you. And as you will recall, uh, he 
passed by and Moses got a glimpse of his backside. But the point of that passage is God sovereignly chose to do that. He decided, decided that he would, in this case, grant Moses' request. But, he argues, that was God's sovereign choice and not Moses' choice, that there was nothing in Moses that demanded that God answer that request. There was nothing that Moses had done or was doing that would necessitate that God grant his prayer. God reserved the right to make the sovereign choice to reveal himself to Moses. Now, from that quotation in Exodus 33, Paul draws a conclusion, verse 16. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. He draws the conclusion that it is not man's choice, it is God's. It is not of him who runs. It was nothing in man. It was not in the way he lived, not even in his choice. Notice it says, not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. It is God who sovereignly chose to be merciful to Moses. By the way, notice, these are in the singular. It's not of him who runs. It's not of him who wills. There are some people who like to teach something called group election, that God chooses groups of people, those who choose to be in Christ. But the Bible teaches individual sovereign election. God chose us individually. Paul is simply arguing God reserves the right to do that. All right, that's the first quote and the first conclusion. There is a second. He says, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Now, this is a quotation from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. This is where it starts getting very heavy. We can accept the fact that God chooses to reveal himself to people. But look what verse 17 says. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For the same purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Pharaoh, of course, did not know God. Now, how do you explain that? Well, let me suggest that you need to look carefully at the book of Exodus. In chapter 5, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, at that point, God started a series of plagues. And there were six of them. At the end of each plague, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. At the end of six plagues, and six or seven times, the scripture says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, the scripture does not teach that God hardened Pharaoh's heart first. It simply teaches 
that uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He rejected God, and God made it permanent. After repeatedly trying to speak to Pharaoh through miraculous miracles, and after repeated rejection, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What Paul says in this verse is that God raised him up to show his power and to make his name known. Had Pharaoh at first decided to let the children of Israel go, they would have quietly slipped out of Egypt and no one would ever have heard about it. But once Pharaoh decided that he was going to reject the truth of God, God then said, all right, I'm going to make it permanent, and I'm going to use this. So he made his power known. He delivered the Jews from Egypt by parting the waters of the Red Sea. And the whole world heard about that. You get over in the book of Joshua, and the people of Canaan had heard that God had parted the waters of the Red Sea. So Pharaoh resisted God. He rejected God. And God simply used Pharaoh's rejection. Now, from that biblical quotation, Paul draws a conclusion. Verse 18 says, therefore. By the way, verse 16 says, so then. And verse 18 says, therefore. But in the Greek text, these are two different translations of the same Greek word. The parallelism at this portion, uh, at this point of Scripture is exact. There is in each case a quotation and a conclusion, a quotation and a conclusion. So here's the conclusion from this quotation. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. In other words, he is saying, in one case, in the case of Moses, God chose to show mercy and grant his request. In the case of Pharaoh, God hardened him after he hardened his heart. But the point of these verses and quotations and conclusions is that God reserved the right to sovereignly choose in each case. He reserved the right to show mercy, and he reserved the right to harden. Now, Let's review. The question in verse 14 is, is there unrighteousness with God? Simply put, is God unfair? Answer, was he unfair in revealing himself to Moses? Was that unfair? No, that wasn't unfair. Was he unrighteous in hardening Pharaoh after Pharaoh had hardened his own heart and after repeated rejection? Was God unfair in hardening his heart? No, that wasn't unfair. Is God unfair? Answer, no. But the other point these verses are making that comes through loudly is God's not unfair, but God is sovereign. And he is righteous and just in exercising his sovereignty. Griffith Thomas has put it like this. Everything he does is absolutely just and is based upon reasons, whether we know them or not. We do not know why Jacob was chosen and not Esau. We only know God's will in the matter as expressed in the choice. 
but we are perfectly certain that the choice was due to reasons of his own. We must pay special attention to three references in Ephesians 1 to the will of God. In verse 5 we read, of the good pleasure of his will. This is the supreme point. God's will, God wills to do a thing because it is his pleasure. In verse 9 we notice the mystery of his will. This is found in the passage before us about Isaac and Jacob. We observe it again and again in the providences of life. God's will is indeed mysterious. In verse 11, we have the counsel of his will. This teaches us that his will is never arbitrary, but is based on reason. He takes counsel with himself. Let us therefore rest upon this fundamental fact that in spite of all mystery, God is righteous or he would not be God. End of quote. God is sovereign. God makes sovereign choices. I know. <laughs> when you first hear that, you want to react and you want to reject it. The simple reality is the Scripture teaches God is sovereign. I think I know how you feel because the first uh, major part of my Christian life, I rejected this doctrine. I became a Christian just before I graduated from high school, immediately went to a Christian college. All the way through college, all the way through seminary, I rejected vehemently the idea that God made sovereign choices, especially in the area of salvation. When I got out of seminary, I began to travel. One day I was speaking in a church and staying in a motel, got up one morning and was reading the New Testament in my devotional time, and I had come to the book of Acts and I was reading the book of Acts and I came to the verse in chapter 13 that says and as many as were uh, elected to salvation uh, received eternal life and I looked at that verse in Acts 13 48 and I thought to myself there's that doctrine of election one of these days I'm going to have to marshal all of my arguments so I can answer all these people who teach this doctrine and I thought, well, today is as good a day as any. I'll start now. I had my Greek text with me, so I opened the Greek text. The King James Version, it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believe. And I looked at the Greek text. Let me tell you what I discovered. Would you care to know what the Greek text says in Acts 13, 48? As many as were ordained, appointed to eternal life, they're the ones who believed. And I looked at that verse and I thought, that verse is teaching the reason they believe is because they were appointed to eternal life. Yeah! I know this sounds a little dramatic, but this is exactly the way it happened. I looked at the verse and said, Kikoris, you don't have any choice. The Bible teaches that God sovereignly chooses people and gives them eternal life. So I got out of my knees in that motel room and I said, God, I've made a decision. I am going to let you be God. And from that day till this minute, I have never struggled with the doctrine of election again. You say, but doesn't that mean he's unfair? Absolutely not. That doesn't mean I can explain everything. I just know this. 
the Bible teaches that God makes sovereign choices. And in the words of Moses as recorded in Genesis, will not the God of all the earth do right? I think when we all stand before him and understand there is not a one that will say God did anything that was unfair. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he was sovereign, that he was Lord, that he was holy, that he was righteous, and that he was just. Is there unrighteousness with God? Absolutely not. Perish the thought. Granted, he reserves the right to make choices, but he's perfectly just in those choices. He was just in showing mercy, and he was just in hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Well, now you say, wait a minute. If God sovereignly chooses people, then man's not responsible, right? Well, that's the second objection that Paul addresses in this passage. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Notice the introduction to this question is different than the introduction to the question in verse 14. In verse 14, the introduction was, what shall we say then? Paul included himself. In verse 19, he says, you will say to me then. The you indicates that now he is entertaining an objector. And apparently, it's not just imaginary. He is saying, you are going to say this. He is speaking of an actual opponent. The little word then in verse 19 indicates that this opponent accepts the conclusion of verses uh, 14 through 18. That this objection is based on the assumption that the first objection was wrong and that God is sovereign. So the objector now stands up and says, all right, I accept your thesis that God is sovereign and sovereignly chooses people. Then how can he find fault with me? And the word fault literally means blame. Well, if God chooses, then it's not my fault. Don't blame me. Meaning, I don't have any responsibility, right? Now, how do you answer that question? Paul adds, for who has resisted his will? I mean, if he's choosing, who am me? Who am I to resist God? Well, Paul answers. But first, he sort of uh, rebukes the questioner. He says in verse 20, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? By addressing the objector as, O oh man, he is putting man in his place. The point of this little statement is, you, a mere man, are going to reply against God? He's rebuking him. The word translated reply actually means to reply to a reply. The technical word for that is rejoiner. So that he is saying, who are you to give a rejoinder against God? Uh, 
The implication is that you're doing this with an argumentative spirit. Doctor is not just seeking information. He is wanting to argue with God and say, well, if you're going to sovereignly make choices, then you can't find fault with me or blame me if I don't make the right choice. So Paul says, who are you to argue with God? There is implied in this question the spirit of combativeness. This person is standing against God, and so Paul just reminds him before he answers, you're just a mere mortal. But after that little rebuke, Paul answers the question. He says in verse 19, excuse me, verse 20, Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Now, in these verses, Paul is not actually quoting the Old Testament, but he is borrowing the words from Isaiah 45, 9. He does not introduce these words with the little phrase, for the scripture says, or as it is written. So he doesn't mean to give an exact quote. But there is no question but what? That he is using that passage to phrase the answer. And what he is saying is this. Who are you to ask God what he does, or for that matter, why he does it? You're in no position to even ask the question. And he uses the illustration from Isaiah chapter 45. The potter has power. The Greek word is literally the right. The potter has the right over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other vessel of dishonor. And the Greek word dishonor doesn't mean that it's dishonorable so much as it means that it is without honor. Now, in the ancient world, a potter made various... Um, utensils, vessels for household use. And some of those vessels were honored, and some didn't have honor. They were without honor. In uh, a modern household, we have um, fine china, costly china, that we honor. We give it the special place. We have other utensils in the house like scrub buckets, and they're very useful. They just don't have any honor connected with them. So Paul says, the potter who makes both of these vessels, and both of these vessels, look at this, out of the same lump of clay, he has the right to do what he wills with these two lumps of clay. And I think if you take the whole chapter of Romans 9 into consideration, Paul probably has in mind what he has referred to earlier in the twins that were born named Esau and Jacob. They were of the same lump, so to speak. They were born at the same time, and yet one of them was honorable and the other was without honor. Now, I think you hear this and it sounds like God is being arbitrary or God is being capricious. And that's not the case at all. No potter ever made any vessel so that he could just throw it down and destroy it. Every vessel was made with a purpose in mind. So the implication of the illustration is that God is not doing this arbitrarily. 
isn't doing this just at his whim or caprice. He has purpose in what he is doing. So, Paul is saying, uh, God reserves the right to do as he will. So the objector is saying, well, then why does he find fault? And Paul just emphatically declares again that God makes sovereign choices. Well, yeah, but just how far do those choices go? Is man responsible? Now, at this point in the passage, Paul does something very, very interesting. In verses 22 to 24, there is one long, complicated, cumbersome sentence that Paul never finishes. He is going to introduce a sentence, and he's never going to finish it. He's never going to answer it. And it is most fascinating. Here's what he says. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, he doesn't actually finish the sentence grammatically, and he for certain doesn't answer it. But he poses a hypothetical situation. And here it is. What if God actually wanted to contrary to the imagery of the potter and the clay, to actually make a vessel fitted for destruction. Who are you to even ask, O oh, mere mortal man? It's awesome. Now, he stops short of saying that God actually did that. But he does pose the question that God could make one vessel fitted for destruction. Notice what he says. He says in verse 22, What if God, wanting to show his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much long suffering? I think in this context, Paul for sure has Pharaoh still in mind. Was God very patient with Pharaoh? Six plagues before he hardened his heart. Did he use him to demonstrate his power? Yep, because of his refusal, he parted the Red Sea. And was he a vessel on which God demonstrated his wrath? Yep, the judgment of God against the army as they entered the Red Sea and were destroyed. So perhaps Pharaoh was still in the back of his mind, but he does not say who fitted the vessels for destruction. He doesn't say that God fitted them for destruction. He doesn't say they fitted themselves. He stops short of this hypothetical situation. And he's just saying, what if God wanted to do that? And furthermore, what if God, in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, prepared them beforehand? Verse 23. And that he wanted to do that to Jews and Gentiles. What if he wanted to do that? Who are you to even ask? 
Who are you to object? Now, at this point in the passage, he quotes one Old Testament passage of Scripture right after another to demonstrate that God has indeed shown mercy on both Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 25. He says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where I have said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now these are quotations from Hosea chapter 2 verse 23 and Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, where the northern tribes of Israel departed from God and he said, you're not my people. And then he turns around and says, but you are my people. In this passage, Paul is applying those quotations to the Gentiles who were not God's people by covenant, but he showed mercy on them and made them his people. Hey, folks, that includes us. Then, in verse 27, he says, Isaiah also cried out concerning Israel. Now, let me again remind you that in verse 24, he speaks of the Jews and of the Gentiles. So he shows that God had mercy on the Gentiles by quoting Hosea in verses 25 and 26. And now he demonstrates from the Old Testament that God showed mercy on Israel by quoting Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 10, 22 and 23 and Isaiah 1, 9, verse 27. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work on the earth. From Isaiah chapter 10, he is saying God is going to save a remnant, even within Israel. Then in verse 29, he quotes chapter 1 of Isaiah. Isaiah said, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. But God didn't do that. He showed his mercy on Israel. Interesting passage of Scripture. The question is, verse 19, why will he then find fault? Why does he then blame me? And if you look at the answer, all he does is say, well, don't argue with God. And frankly, God has the right to do anything he wants even if he wanted to make a vessel fitted for destruction. What if he wanted to do that? Who are you to argue with him? He's the potter. We are merely the clay. Well, how does that answer the question? Well, it doesn't answer it directly. It's just coming back and insisting that God is sovereign. But there is, I think, implied in these answers that even if God is sovereignly choosing, man is still responsible. I concede that that's not developed in the immediate context after verse 19. But beginning in verse 30, which we'll pick up next time, he then clearly develops that even though God is sovereign, man is still responsible. That man is still responsible before this holy God and will be held accountable for his responsibility. So, you end up in Romans 9 and 10 with this interesting combination. 
that on the one hand, Paul is dogmatically insisting that God reserves the right to sovereignly choose. On the other hand, by implication thus far, but by clear statement in chapter 10, man is still responsible. One commentator said, the sovereignty of God is absolute, yet it is never exercised in condemning men who ought to be saved, but rather it resulted in the salvation of men who deserve to be lost. Surely no one can regard God as unjust if he is rejecting impotent and unbelieving Israelites and is saving Gentiles who turn to him in penitence and faith. Interesting way to put it, acknowledging that God is sovereign and yet he's choosing to save those who choose to trust in him. How do you put those two things together? How can God be sovereign and and man be responsible? I don't know. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said once that he figured it all out when he was a first-year student in seminary, but he forgot how he did it. I don't know how to put it all together. I just come to the Word of God and have to bow the knee and say, God, I concede that you are sovereign and that you are just in the use of your sovereign choices, that we are responsible, and I don't understand it. Let me sum it all up. I think this portion of Romans 9 is teaching us that objections to God's sovereign election that makes God unjust and men irresponsible are contrary to the Scriptures. Notice he's dealing very clearly with objections to sovereignty. And then he quotes one passage of Scripture right after another. So what's he telling us? That if you come to some kind of conclusion that God's unjust, that's contrary to the Scripture. And if you come to some kind of conclusion that man isn't responsible, that's contrary to the Scripture. So the point is, all of the objections to the doctrine of God's sovereign selection that makes man irresponsible and God unfair are unscriptural. Flip it all around and you conclude that the scripture teaches that God is sovereign. He's absolutely sovereign. And man is responsible. He's absolutely responsible. Let me conclude by making a couple of observations. The first is very simply that God is sovereign and that he's just in the exercise of his sovereignty. As I said at the beginning, I think when people hear this, they don't like it. Why don't we like it? I think one of the reasons we don't like it is because as human beings, we are afraid of tyranny. We think that a tyrant with absolute authority will somehow use it to the detriment of other people. 
that we as Americans especially have this in the very warp and woof of our life. Our whole nation is built on a constitution that does not trust absolute power. We have three branches of government. We have a government that is constructed in such a way as to have checks and balances. Why? Because we do not trust anybody with absolute power. We as Americans are terrified of a tyrant who would rule over us. But you see, God has absolute power. And he is a gracious power. The fact remains, whether we like it or not, the Bible teaches God sovereignly chooses some. Let me make another observation. The other observation is this. Sovereignty is our only hope. Now just think. Think biblically for a second. Think. If God didn't choose us, would we ever choose him? Well, if you know anything at all about human nature or about the word of God, you know the answer to that. Romans 3.11 says, none seek after God. Does the human heart naturally seek after God? No way, folks. No way. My only hope is that God sought me. Conclusion. God's sovereign. Amen. And he's just in the exercise of his sovereignty. I want to tell you something. Down in the deep recesses of your spiritual soul, you believe God's sovereign. You might verbalize arguments against this doctrine. You might say you don't like it. But if you know Jesus Christ deep in the inner sanctuary of your soul, you really believe this doctrine. So just quit fighting it and let God be God, will you? Now, how can I say that? Well, I want to close by reading an excerpt from a book entitled Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. This is one of the finest arguments I have ever heard for why we don't need to argue about this doctrine because you already believe it. Rather lengthy, but it's so well done I hate to edit it. May I just read it to you? Packer says, I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in his world. There is no need. For I know that if you are a Christian, you believe that already. How do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and you give thanks for things. Why? 
because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have already had and all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. It is not our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from his hand. If this is true, even our daily bread, and the Lord's Prayer teaches that it is, much more is it true of our spiritual benefit. This is all luminously clear to us when we're actually praying whatever we may be betrayed into saying in arguments afterwards. In effect, therefore, what we do every time we pray is confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. The very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive that he believes in the lordship of his God. Nor again am I going to spend time proving to you the particular truth that God is sovereign in salvation. First, Packer wanted to prove that God was sovereign in his world because we pray. Now he's going to prove that we all believe that God is sovereign in salvation. Returning to the quote, he says, For that too you believe already. Two facts show this. In the first place, you give God thanks for your conversion. Now, why do you do that? Because you know in your heart that God has in, was entirely responsible for it. You did not save yourself, he saved you. Your thanksgiving is in itself an acknowledgement that your conversion was not your own work, but his work. There's a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray for the conversion of others. In what terms now do you intercede for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is pray in categorical terms that God will quite simply and decisively save them. That he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hard hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. You would not dream of making it a point in your prayer that you are not asking God actually to bring them to faith because you recognize that that is something he cannot do. Nothing of the sort. When you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that it is God's power to bring them to faith. End of quote. Do you pray? Then you just need to face it. You believe in the sovereignty of God. One other brief word. I have come to the conclusion that God is sovereign even in salvation. Therefore, A, I pray for people to be saved. 
And I do it with the assurance that God's got the power to save them. And secondly, I engage in evangelism with assurance that I'm going to see people saved. If I didn't believe in sovereignty, I don't think, I, I think I'd get discouraged in evangelism. Because I know that men's hearts are turned against God and they'll never seek Him. But because I know that He's elected some, I go around talking to people to see if I can find one of the elect. So believing in the sovereignty of God is not a deterrent to prayer. It's an encouragement to prayer. And it's not a deterrent to evangelism. It's the only assurance we got. That we will be saved or anybody else will be saved. Let's pray. I mean, let's pray. We have a sovereign God. He has all power in heaven and earth. We can talk to him. He has the power to answer. For which we thank you, Father. We thank you that we serve a sovereign God. Though in our stubbornness and our self-will, we sometimes emotionally react. In our more sober moments, we are well aware that you are the sovereign God who has saved us. And we give you thanks. We praise you for your power and your grace and your justice. In Jesus' name, amen.